This evening, we're going to be continuing our study through the book of James, looking at James chapter 3. James chapter 3. If you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to turn there. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 18. James 3, verses 13 through 18. You can follow along in your Bible, or it's on the screen behind me. Who is wise in understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder into every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let me pray. Lord, we want wisdom. I pray you'd provide it. Lord, speak to us through your word. Give us faith to hear. Spirit, I pray that you would supernaturally take the words that are being spoken, that are being read. Lord, that you would apply it to hearts so that lives are changed. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Where do you go when you need wisdom? Where do you turn? Where do you turn when you know that you need wisdom? Every one of us has been in a situation where we didn't know what to do, where we recognized our own limitations and knew that we needed wisdom. Where do we go to get it? And then once we turn there, how do we know whether or not what we hear is actually wise or not? How do we discern whether the wisdom that is being shared with us or the wisdom that's being shared with us is actually wise counsel? Where do we go? Well, maybe we turn to one of the elders in our community. So an older person who's lived a long time, has gray hair, maybe, maybe they're the person that we turn to. But does life experience necessarily lead to wisdom? Or maybe we turn to a smart person in our lives. Maybe from when we were a student, one of our professors, or, or a, a colleague at work who seems like they're incredibly intelligent. They have the information. They could pass the test. They ought to be able to provide wisdom, right? But is knowing things the same thing as wisdom? Does information necessarily lead to wisdom? Or maybe we look at those people in our field who have been incredibly successful, right? We look at the money that they've made. We look at the job status that they have. They surely have wisdom, right? But does earthly success necessarily lead to wisdom? If you're younger, maybe you turn to YouTube, 
right? You find some influencer, a creative, who's shared a nine and a half minute video, just long enough that you can watch it, but not too long that you're going to click past it. It's polished. It looks clean. They're fast talking. They have all the right words. Surely they are a source of wisdom. How do we know where to turn for wisdom? James 3 helps us to know what is wisdom and how do we get it. James 3 works through this passage. The Bible commands us to get wisdom. That's a command. Get wisdom. (laughs) But we need to know where to get that and how to know whether we have actual wisdom. So James helps us. We're going to look at three points this morning or this evening. Still used to meeting on Fridays. Three points this evening as we pursue true wisdom. First, wisdom in works. Second, wisdom from below. And third, wisdom from above. Wisdom in works, wisdom from below, and wisdom from above. So first, James is going to look at wisdom and works. He takes wisdom, and he he doesn't connect it primarily to the things that we know. James connects wisdom primarily with the things that we do. Look at verse 13. Who is wise in understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. The test that James gives for discerning whether someone is truly wise or not, so he's asking the church, who's wise among you? The test that you go to is you look at the things that people do. You look at their works. Our works show our wisdom. Good works, as we've been seeing, I mean, we've been in James for the summer, good works are incredibly important to the book of James. Good works are important because of what they show, according to James. They're a revealer of things. We've already seen our works show our purity of religion. Religion that is pure and undefiled is this, to visit the widows and orphans in their affliction. Our works show the purity of our religion. Our works show the genuineness of our faith. You say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith by your works. Our works show the reality of our new birth, right? Whether, whether we have works or not shows whether we've experienced the life-changing power of the Holy Spirit in regeneration. And our works show the nature of our wisdom here, James says. Do you want to know whether someone's wise? Look at what they do. Their works will either be done in wisdom or their works will be done in folly. Why is this the case? Why can we look at the actions that someone has and know whether or not they are wise? Well, that's because of the nature of wisdom itself. So if you asked me to define wisdom, so if you said, Luke, what is wisdom? Here would be my kind of dictionary definition that I would give you. Wisdom is the application of knowledge in an appropriate manner to a particular situation. So wisdom is the application of knowledge in an appropriate manner to a particular situation. Wisdom includes knowledge, but it doesn't stop with knowledge. So you have to have some knowledge to be able to be wise, but you don't stop there. You take your knowledge and you put it into practice. You apply it in a way that's appropriate. Wise people don't only have information, wise people have action. To use James's language, they're not only hearers of the word, but they are doers of the word. 
And that's how their works and their wisdom go together. Our works are the application of our knowledge and our understanding. Probably the most famous illustration of wisdom in the Bible is in King Solomon. Some of you are familiar with that story. So King Solomon was a king in Israel's history. He asked God when he was a young king. He asked God for help. He needed wisdom to be able to rule this kingdom, and God provided it for him miraculously. And then right away in 1 Kings 3, we get this situation where all of a sudden King Solomon needs to be able to make the right decision. You have an incredibly complicated situation. You have two women. One of them has lost their baby. The other one has a baby, but they're both claiming that the living baby is their own. No one else is there. It's one's word against another. You have this tragic, difficult situation, and there's no other witnesses. There's just these two women, and they both say, that baby's mine. What are you going to do, Solomon? Solomon says something incredible to be able to judge whether the woman, whether the baby belongs to the right woman. And he says this, this is 1 Kings 3. Then the king, Solomon, said, the one says, this is my son that is alive and your son is dead. The other says, no, but your son is dead and my son is the living one. One's word against the other. The king said, bring me a sword So a sword was brought before the king, and the king said, Divide the living child in two. Give half to the one and half to the other. Solomon knew human nature. In knowing human nature, he knew with his mind, he knew the way that a mother cares for her own child. He also knew the sinfulness of human nature and that people who have been hurt can want others to be hurt as well. They want to include others in their pain and in their misery. And so he says something that sounds crazy. Divide the living child in two in order to draw out. He doesn't just know human nature. He knows what to do to draw out human nature. He makes a wise judgment. He applies his knowledge to this particular situation. And upon hearing it, the true mother is brought about. She's willing to lose everything. She's willing to lose her right to the child so the child will live. Meanwhile, the false mother just wants to hurt other people and says, no, we won't have the baby, either one of us. Cut the baby in half. Through that test, Solomon is able to apply his knowledge to a situation in a way that was wise. And all of Israel heard about it, and they, this is what the text says, they heard the judgment that the king rendered, and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. Solomon's wisdom was tangible. You could see it. You could perceive his wisdom, and it was perceived in what he did. His works showed his wisdom. That's what James is getting at here. But then James uses a strange term in verse 13. He says, let them show their works in the meekness of wisdom. Why does he use the term meekness of wisdom there? Well, meekness refers to submission, 
So if you're someone who is meek, it means you're willing to go along. Meek people don't elevate themselves above other people. Meek people humble themselves before other people. And this is exactly how wisdom, true wisdom, and meekness go hand in hand. Because listen to the way the Bible describes wisdom. Proverbs 9. The fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. The fear of the Lord, according to the Bible, is not some terror, like I don't want to go near that, though when sinners encounter God, that is their response. When the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord, it's talking about appropriate honor, appropriate reverence, appropriate respect due to this person. When we fear God, we recognize that he is the greatest person in the universe and that we are nothing before him. When we fear God, we recognize his power, his goodness, his might is far greater than anything else that we have. You cannot glorify yourself in the presence of God. When you see God, you glorify God. Meekness, then, is the right response to God's glory. It's humility. That's how the fear of the Lord is connected to wisdom. Wisdom is meek because wisdom sees God as the all-encompassing reality in the universe. If you do not fear the Lord, you are not on the path to true wisdom. That's what the Bible says. Because every bit of knowledge, every bit of life doesn't take into account the greatest being in the universe. If you don't fear the Lord, then you cannot be truly wise, according to the Bible. If you have a math equation, I was an English major, but I've heard of these things called math equations. If you have a math equation and you lack one piece of data, it can throw the entire equation off. If you don't fear the Lord, it throws the entire equation of your life off. It throws the entire equation of your wisdom off because you're not taking into account God. <laughs> you're not taking into account the greatest being in the universe. Failing to fear the Lord creates a hole in the equation for true wisdom. Our lives are lived before the face of God. Our actions are to be brought into submission to him. True wisdom cannot be anything but meek because true wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. And how we live before God, the way that we conduct ourselves in light of the fear of the Lord, shows whether we are truly wise or not. Our works show our wisdom. So verse 13 gives us the test. Show wisdom by our works. In the verses that follow, James is going to lay out two different types of wisdom. Wisdom from below and wisdom from above. We'll look at them one at a time. Wisdom from below. James, before getting into what wisdom Christians should be pursuing, James describes the wisdom that we shouldn't be pursuing. He describes false wisdom. And we can know, as we would expect, we can know this false wisdom by its actions, by its works. Look at verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. 
We're actually going to work backwards up looking at verse 16, then 15, then 14 to understand what James is saying here. What sort of works show wisdom that's from below? Well, verse 16 says that they will be marked by disorder and every vile practice. So when you're looking in the world and you see disorder and vile practice, then you can say, ah, what's behind that is wisdom that's from above or from below. But what are those things? Well, every vile practice would be lawlessness, going against God's command. These would include things that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. When you, when you see those actions lived out, when you see people's lives who are characterized by those sins before you, you can know the source of their wisdom is from below. It's not from above. Wisdom from below leads to these sinful works. But what does disorder mean? James says when you see disorder, that also shows wisdom from below. I don't think James is talking about chaos. So like, I'm, I'm very type A. I like everything neat in its proper place. I don't think I can go into a room that's messy and say, wisdom from below, see it on display. I don't think that's what James is saying. I think what James is talking about is not disorder and chaos in general. I think what James is talking about is a disorder of the soul. A disorder of the soul. A disordered soul is a soul that's pulled in a different direction. It's pulled this way, it's pulled that way, and it's eventually undone. And the Greek word that James uses here, we've actually seen it in a different form already in this letter. The Greek word in its other form describes the double-minded person and the double-speaking tongue. So when James is talking about a disordered person, he's talking about the double-mindedness of the soul. A double-minded, disordered life is a mark of wisdom that is from below. It's one person that's pulled in one direction. They don't know whether to worship God or not, or how to worship God. They are double-minded. And notice that the works that James describes, so disorder and every vile practice, those are external fruits of internal realities. So those are displayed of something else. The internal sins are jealousy and selfish ambition. You can't see jealousy and selfish ambition. You, don't, you can't see whether someone is feeling jealousy in their heart. You can't see whether someone is feeling selfish ambition in their heart. What you see is the actions that it leads to. You can see the fruit that they produce, the double-minded disorder and the every vile practice. In verse 16, James shows the works of wisdom from below. In verse 15, James describes what this wisdom is like. And he uses three words to do so. Earthly, that is, not from heaven. Unspiritual, that is, not of the Spirit. And demonic, not of God. And James's final characteristic is the capstone of this wisdom that's from below. It's from Satan. It's demonic. Do you know what Satan's wisdom is like? Satan knows true things. 
He may know true things about God. He may know more true things about God than we do in this room. We saw this in chapter 2. The demons believe that God is one. But knowing true things, Satan doesn't submit to God. Satan uses that knowledge to create disorder in this world, to pull people away from God. He wants to rebel against God with that knowledge. We see Satan's wisdom on display in the Garden of Eden. We see him take the command of God and twist it and manipulate it and use it in such a way so that Eve is led to sin. And being led to sin led to death. Their souls, Adam and Eve's souls, are torn apart and God's image is distorted. We see Satan's wisdom on display in the wilderness with Jesus and the temptation. He takes true things. People need food to survive. That's a true fact. Messiahs deserve to be worshipped. That's a true fact. But he takes those things and he uses it as weapons to try and keep Jesus from fulfilling God's purpose. He can even quote scripture back to Jesus in his wisdom. But it's meant to destroy. And those of us who come to church can be similar to this. We can be like this. We have husbands who know that husbands are called to be the heads of the family. And they use that truth to beat their wives and children into submission. They don't apply that in a Christ-like sacrificial way. They use it to destroy their children, dominating their wives and children along the way. Or we know that the Bible calls for us to speak the truth. And so we use that as an excuse. We take our knowledge and rather than applying it in the right way, we apply it in a satanic way. We use that knowledge to destroy people, to say harsh words with a clear conscience. I'm just telling it as it is. We crush those around us. Or we know that the Bible teaches that we are saved by grace. And so we use that knowledge in order to sin presumptuously against God. I'll do it again. God will forgive me. I'm saved by grace. There's time to repent. I'll do that later. After all, we're saved by grace. Let's sin so that grace can abound. That's the wisdom that's from below, that's in the church. This wisdom is demonic. (laughs) And verse 14 shows the reason why. It's only concerned about self. It's only concerned about elevating ourselves. What can we get for us? But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Wisdom from below is proud. It's arrogant. It's full of selfish ambition and jealousy. It's false to the truth because it claims to be something that it's not. It claims the status of wisdom when in reality it's not. Rather than fearing God, it fears the loss of its own glory. Rather than submitting to God, it submits to its own passions. Rather than being marked by meekness, it's marked by boastfulness and arrogance. Wisdom from below craves glory for itself. You can be incredibly successful in this world and have wisdom from below because you are all about yourself. And in that regard, you're just like Satan. (laughs) willing to do whatever it takes in order to elevate 
your own glory. But James doesn't stop with the negative. James moves from the negative to the positive. He describes the type of wisdom that we should be marked at as Christians. Look at verse 17. This is wisdom from above. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. James lists seven traits to describe wisdom from above. It's pure, it's peaceable, it's gentle, it's open to reason, it's full of mercy and good fruits, it's impartial, and it's sincere. And in listing these seven traits, I think James is trying to show the completeness of wisdom. He's trying to show the perfection of wisdom that comes from above. But what do these traits have in common? What, what's the thread that runs through them all? Is this just a random list, or is there something that connects them? I mentioned earlier that my definition of wisdom is the application of knowledge in an appropriate manner to a, pro, a pro particular situation. And I think this list, these seven characteristics, are what it looks like to apply the fear of the Lord to different situations. This list is what the fear of the Lord looks like when it meets certain areas. Wisdom from above recognizes the supremacy of God over all things. That's why it's meek. Wisdom from above trembles in the presence of God and in his holiness. It operates in light of God's reality. It, it, it never acts as if God didn't exist. It never does something as if God doesn't see and God doesn't know. Those who are truly wise, they have God at the center of their lives. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And each one of these seven traits is what the fear of the Lord looks like when it meets different scenarios, when it meets particular contexts and situations. What does it look like to apply the fear of the Lord to our desires and our longings? It looks like purity. It looks like having desires that are pure rather than impure. What happens when the knowledge of God's reconciling grace and peace comes to bear upon the way that we relate to each other as people? We become peaceable. We become peacemakers. What's the application of God's fatherly kindness and his care for people and his sovereignty and his control over all situations? What does it look like to live as if those things are true? We're gentle. We're gentle like our father. We're gentle because we trust him. We don't need to force people to do things. We don't have that power. We can be gentle and trusting how do wise people conduct themselves in light of their own limitations, right? When you're dealing with arguments or you're dealing with ideas, do you think that you are God, that you know everything, that your answers are perfect? No. The fear of the Lord, when it meets the ideas, is open to reason. We recognize God's the one who knows all. I don't. Therefore, I can be persuaded otherwise. 
I'm reasonable. How do those who know the forgiveness of God, the fact that we are saved by grace through faith, that I didn't do anything to deserve God's forgiveness other than receive Christ, how do those who know the forgiveness of God interact with people who have wronged them? It's full of mercy and good fruits. What happens when a rebellious sinner is recognized that God chose them in Christ, not because of their status, but because of his own goodness? They show impartiality to other people. And how do those who know the complete demands of Christ on our whole being live out before the face of God? They're sincere. They're not double-minded. Each seven of these lists, or each of these seven in this list, is what it looks like to fear God in different situations. It's what it looks like to trust God, to acknowledge his sovereignty and his goodness in a particular situation. True wisdom is not a technique that you learn. It's not a TED talk that you attend or a seminar that you go to. True wisdom is living life as if God exists and that he's the most real thing in your universe because he is. It's applying the knowledge of God's existence, the knowledge of God's character, the knowledge of grace to every area of our lives. Wisdom that is from above fears the Lord and applies that fear to our being. And then it produces what James has been going after all the time. James is all about producing righteousness. Not righteousness of our own accord, but showing righteousness. And wisdom from above produces a harvest of righteousness. We're going to wrap up today by looking at a pathway towards true wisdom. So James has been doing this stark contrast between wisdom from below, wisdom from above. We're going to look at how do we get true wisdom. And there's four looks, so four glances, four looks that we're going to take in order to attain true wisdom. The first and this is the most essential, <laughs> we look to Jesus. We look to Jesus. Jesus is the wisdom of God embodied. Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 calls Jesus the power of God and the wisdom of God. For Jews demand a sign, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Wisdom from below desires its own glory, regardless of the cost. Wisdom from above wants to see God glorified, even if it means taking up our cross and following him. Wisdom from below elevates power, human intellect, miraculous signs. Wisdom from above sees the so-called folly of a crucified Messiah and says, that's wisdom. That's wisdom. Jesus shows the wisdom of heaven. He gave his life so that those who are naturally foolish can be made wise. He died so that those who turn to him in faith can have eternal life. And by looking to Jesus in faith, we're made new. Christ puts his wisdom in us through the Spirit. 
But we don't only look to Jesus for salvation once. We look to him over and over and over again, not just for salvation, but for transformation. By beholding Jesus, we become more like him. Paul says this later on. He says, And all we with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed from the same image, from one degree of glory to the other. By beholding Christ, we become like Christ. By seeing God's wisdom, we become wise ourselves. Jesus is not just our example of wise living. Jesus is the power for wise living. We look to Jesus. Second, we look to God for help. We look to God for help. And this comes through prayer. James commands us, we've already seen it in chapter 1, he commands us to go to God for wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. By mere effort alone, you cannot produce wisdom in your own life. You can't create order from a double-minded soul. But God can, and God does. And he loves to do that over and over and over again. So when we see our double-minded disorder in our hearts, we pray, Lord, unite my heart to fear your name. We look to God for help and he gives it. Christian, do you know that God loves you? That God loves you so much that he sent Christ the wisdom of God to die for you. And if he didn't withhold the wisdom of God dying in your place, then he's not going to withhold wisdom for a particular need that you have. He who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things, including wisdom? Pray to God. Look to him for help. Third, we, we look to God's word for guidance. So we look to Christ, we look to God in prayer, we look to God's word for guidance. The Bible is full of what's called wisdom literature. A big chunk of our Old Testaments is called this. Do you want to know what it looks like to suffer well? Go to the book of Job. As you're understanding God's dealing in the fallen world and how the righteous can respond appropriately. Do you want to see what it looks like to cling to God in different situations? Go to the Psalms. How to pray and cry out to him in hard times. How to delight in him in good times. Do you want to know what it looks like for wise, practical living? Things like parenting and purity. Go to Proverbs. Proverbs is filled with that. But don't stop there. 2 Timothy 3 says that all Scripture is given from the very mouth of God, that we might be equipped for every good work. So read your whole Bible and see the wisdom of God there. If you're not reading your Bible day in and day out, then you are cutting yourself off from the source of wisdom that can help you. If you're not turning to God's word, if you're turning somewhere else, then you are missing out on what God gives us tangibly to know how to live wisely. And finally, after looking to Jesus, looking to God in prayer, looking to God's word, we look to other Christians as examples. We look to other Christians as examples for what it looks like to live wisely. 
This is one of the reasons why church in coming to a gathering like this is so important. This is one of the reasons why it's been so hard over the last year and a half. You can hear true things through a sermon. You can hear truths about wisdom through a sermon. I hope you do. I hope I'm not wasting my time, and I hope I'm not saying anything false. But you can't see wisdom through a sermon. You can't see whether I'm operating from selfish ambition or from humility or not. You can't get on YouTube and download other people's lives for yourself. You only see what they put before you. You're only hearing what I chose to say. But when you come to church and you walk alongside other Christians, what you get to see is you get to see wisdom on display. You get to see people who are embodying that list that James gave. You get to see parents who are wisely raising their children, singles who are fighting for holiness and purity and contentment in Christ. You get to see people who are suffering and people who are succeeding and doing so to the glory of God. We are not a perfect church. We mess up over and over and over again. But we need the church because we need to see wisdom lived out. We can't just download it through a sermon. We have to see it lived out in our midst. True wisdom comes about from applying the fear of the Lord to every area of our lives. My prayer for our church is that we would live wisely. We would look to Jesus we look to God in prayer, look to God's word, look to each other, model for each other what it looks like to fear God with every area of our lives. Lord, we can't do that on our own. We acknowledge that, God. And I pray, Lord, that you would forgive us from when we have been inconsistent, when we have been double-minded rather than united. And Lord, I pray that we would be a church, that Redeemer Online would be a church that's marked by wisdom, that displays purity and peaceableness and gentleness, that we fear you and live as if you are the greatest being in our universe because you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.